G'day mate, Forty here. I'm back after losing my internet partway through the last stream. Let's resume this discussion on Richard Spencer's radixjournal.substack. A direction from which to go. Yeah, but see, this is what we did. And, you know, you're, you're, the groomer thing is just like one more thing that we would have talked about and we did talk about back in the day. And when you say capitalizing, capitalizing for whom? I mean, one of the things that I have noticed is that we would have talked much about like it. in 2015, 2016, the alt-right is aligned with Trumpism and, and now it's aligned with conservatism. So the interesting dynamic in 2015 and 2016 up until the election was that the alt-right was aligned with Trump, but it was totally antagonistic towards conserv the conservative establishment and the Republican establishment, et cetera. Um, now, like the groomer thing, like Charlie Kirk does groomer stuff, Ben Shapiro does groomer stuff, as you just mentioned. So you're just like, you're basically just like a lower channel on conserv the conservative blog. You use yeah. the word capitalizing, and that's not yeah. the same as capitalizing off of emotion is not the same as directing it. I'm, I'm not saying yeah. that we ought to, I'm, I'm not saying that we ought to be Ben Shapiro 2.0 or Charlie Kirk 2.0, obviously not, um, but there are avenues to transition from the groomer conversation to, shall we say, more interesting conversations. But, but sure, well, so here, like, I've heard this if I can, I've like, heard this exact like, argument before. Go ahead. Sure, yeah, well, I mean, and like, just to, and like, you know, I don't want to turn this into just grilling Jim, but um, I mean, like, just to press <laughs> you on it, I mean, like, because you keep saying, like, there's ways to, ca like, like, but what do you mean? Like, what do you want to do? Because and, and like like I'm not saying that just to grill you, but I mean, um, and because I'm open to entertaining ideas, but I mean I, I think I mean and like I think maybe kind of what we're getting at is like anything that you might bring up is something that's already been tried. But I mean like just tell me so like like um, okay. do you have anything in mind? Because I mean capitalize. I mean because because that, that's just an abstraction what you're throwing out. You're saying let's well, I think we should capitalize, use energies and all this stuff. But it sounds like you know some just something some little laugh love girl would say like let's light a vanilla candle and you know just just channel our vibes here. I mean like what do you want to do practically? All right, now it, it's I, I do think there's a bit of a pragmatic or real politic approach to um, reading the room. I think uh, on the groomer issue specifically, it, it is a channel into conversations about um, the type of people who promote this sort of degeneracy. If you if you get my gist, I mean, I can say it, but I don't have to. Well, you can look. This is a private call. I mean, this, this is not. None of these calls have been. You can just say it. Well, are you talking about the Jews? Is that what I'm hearing? Or yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> just say it. I mean, like I, we're not. We're, yeah. No, I, I know I can say it. I just thought I was implying strongly enough. It wasn't necessary. Okay. If you wanted to redirect the conversation about uh, pride, for example, um, you could simply ask why would they name their movement uh, pride and use a rainbow when it seems like a reference to the Bible, um, because apparently pride is a sin and the rainbow has something to do with Noah. And you could ask, you could just yeah. investigate the symbolism of their movement and question what, why they use the symbolism that they do. You could even go uh, so far as to, as to ask the gays, like, do you really think you're heroes? Do you really think what and people hate? Of course, they're heroes. Oh, Come on. Like, well, Richard and you guys, you know, you're not going to engage in some kind of civic activism. Then what are you going to do? What's what are we doing here? Yes, we are. First off, on the in the immediate term, we are going to publish interesting works, which is truly developing ideas and not simply political platitudes. Secondly, I mean, and I mean this in all seriousness, um, we are starting a new religion, and. This is a dramatic, like, attempt to reorient the world, and not only white people. And everything that's kind of like more immediate, like stuff that we do that's, I don't know, just a podcast or a book or something, like, it's all leading towards that major goal. It's a little brick, and it might be a really small one, but it is a brick that is leading towards a Tower of Babel, you could say. It's leading towards a goal of a total reorientation on a spiritual level of the entire population of this planet. Wait, it's leading towards a Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel 
is a story in the book of Genesis that ends in absolute disaster. So Richard Spencer wants to start a new religion that will be like the Tower of Babel, which in the story ends in absolute disaster. Doesn't seem promising. It's a new world order and a new psyche, a collective psyche. Have effort of and people hate everyone hates child molesters. Well, what is really, polyamory? I would define it as people being open towards multiple people having a permanent relationship together, regardless of sex or gender identity. So, like, a, like these, these, you, you see these couples in Brooklyn where it's like, like two lesbians and their boyfriend, or, or like the, this kind of that is what you're talking about. Yes, anything with three or more people. It could be, um, a, it could be a Mormon polygamous compound, or it could just be uh, three well, lesbians women living support. together. Lesbians and their boyfriend <laughs> sounds like best to me. Three or more people in a relationship <laughs> on a permanent <laughs> basis together. Two, two hot lesbians and their boyfriend. Our question is, where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, jokes aside, um, so you're talking about a permanent thing. You're not talking about like swingers or something. You're talking about like, you know, you're in some weird, like there's a tranny, a uh, gay and a bisexual and they all share an apartment and they're like, they, they, they're weirdly married or something like according to the law. And yeah, so they might raise okay. kids, might raise kids together. Right. And it's permanent. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, see that all of that just strikes me as like, that will always be niche. Although I, again, I have sometimes like underestimated like the what people will tolerate but um i i think the transsexual thing i don't think that is over yet because you can still like openly oppose it like back in 2005 you could be a republican politician or i should say this you could be a democratic politician and just like openly reject gay marriage and just say no and absolutely no in adoption i mean barack obama opposed gay marriage pretty i mean explicitly i mean he did it gently you could say but he did it he just said no to gay marriage he said civil partnerships like you can visit your gay you know, you can visit your boyfriend at the hospital and you can inherit his money or whatever. But like the marriage question was just absolute no. And then it slowly shifted over the course of his administration. The transgender thing, you can still just openly oppose it. Um, I, I don't think, I think it has legs. I mean, I, I don't, I, I agree that like, like, Ed, you know, even in Spiteful Mutants, like Ed Dunn talks a little bit about like the pedophilia thing. And we should remember that there was a weird, in the degenerate 70s, there was- So Richard's saying that we can just openly oppose transsexualism and there's there's no price to pay for that. I mean, come on. If you if you articulate the conservative point of view on transsexualism, and so the the normal conservative reaction to transsexualism is that it's a mental illness. But if you articulate that point of view on the big social media sites, you will be banned. Right? There's considerable blowback for skepticism, let alone opposition towards the transsexual movement was a kind of like push for pedophilia like hey it's all love like you know kids are cool like you know by, by basically by like male predators who wanted to have sex with 13 year old girls or you know like totally uh self-serving charles manson let polyamory cool right yeah so I, and these things actually died down like if you had promoted pedophilia in the 80s people would just like want you locked up or something i mean it, so i generally i mean again i might be wrong on this I, I just think pedophilia is a step too far you just can't get like yeah i don't know it'll it's never just, happen it'll never yeah happen. but but, but this is the weird thing, and, and, and this is where I think you need to like fully understand the dynamic which, with transsexuality, is that like these kids, millennials and Gen Z, are not having that much sex. They're having like tremendously less. So now a third American's gone missing in Ukraine, and you'd have to wonder what kind of American goes to fight for Ukraine. So I would suspect that it'd be a considerable number of people who don't feel like they have much to lose don't feel like their life is particularly valuable. So I wonder how many people are making a considered and, and strong choice 
or how many people are acting out of desperation that they want to give their life heroic meaning that it otherwise doesn't have. I mean, are people with wives and children, with flourishing careers, going to Ukraine to fight? I'm skeptical. I know an acquaintance who wanted to go to the Middle East to fight for Christians, even though he had no military experience. Less sex than their uh, than previous generations at this age. And we probably kind of underestimate the like levels at which like the silent gen, when you were 15, you like went to a bar and screwed some slut or prostitute. Like there was kind of like, like it was obviously a much more conservative generation, but there was like a kind of level of degeneracy that I think is not present. Now you go in a live stream and talk about your weird sexual identity. I mean, I think it's mostly about like this deconstructive effort of the human being. Like you, you're rediscovering gender and identity in all of these like extremely complicated and contradictory ways, but you're weirdly not liberated. And, and it's, and it is funny how like me too and, <laughs> and transgenderism kind of like go hand in hand in the sense that me too was, I mean, not that there aren't actual male predators who behave in ways that we would all condemn. Of course there are, but like, you know, it was a kind of attack on like robust masculinity on some level, you know, it's like, well, I can't believe that the CEO is banging his secretary or whatever. That's such a power dynamic that, oh, you know, whatever, you know, it was an attack on like red-blooded heterosexual behavior. And it coincided with this like deconstruction of the person. And, and I think even like the pronoun thing is really significant because I think grammar is extremely significant. So this, this notion that like you, how do I say it? Like, I'm not an I, I'm a they, and I'm, I'm an it or I'm, I'm a whatever, like that actually is really significant in terms of your psychology, just your brain function, the grammar you use to describe yourself. So I think we're just at the start of like identity deconstruction and like identity creation. I think what's happening is the environment changed and, uh, and it changed the genetics of people. And so they're passing down these new genes and it's creating new politics where they're all mentally ill and physically ill. And yeah. they just don't know what their identity is. I think that's genetic. And I think the industrial revolution, I noticed that when the industrial revolution happened, uh, like the liberalism. And hmm. Well, it's certainly a selection event. I mean, um, I would, I would go far with this and I mean, I'll say things that are quite radical in this regard. Um, and they're going to probably rub people the wrong way, but, um, so Rich is not a big fan of nationalism. We, we know that. So nationalism elevates the dignity of every individual because you're part of a greater whole. You're part of a nation. And uh, apparently he's not a big fan of sexual democracy where one man, one woman. But he, he prefers the aristocratic mythos where the the lord of the manor has the right to the first night of, of any bride. Yeah, I mean, I... I think that middle-class Christian monogamy and what, what is basically sexual egalitarianism or sexual democracy, how, whichever one you want to say, where basically it's one man, one woman, and everyone is going to reproduce and so on. I, I think, I mean, this is a Ed Dutton kind of mean. He doesn't take it maybe to the extent that I'm going to take it, but like... There... So listen carefully here. He doesn't think sexual democracy, one man, one woman is a good idea. There were serious problems with the Industrial Revolution and the, and the, the basically end of high child mortality. And that's something that Ed talks about really well, and I, I, I relayed also in this group. But um, that, you know, we, we, the conservatives always want to look back on like the 1950s and not blame it for what it created in the sense that, you know, where did this come from? Um, I think the lack of. I'm sure there's plenty of blame that you can place on the 1950s, but 
not everything that happened post 1950s is the fault of the of the people in the 1950s right people make choices cultures change politicians make choices so yeah it's certainly worth asking what was it about the 1950s that gave rise to subsequent decades and their degeneracy but not everything that happens post the 1950s is going to be the fault of the 1950s people have agency health in our environment you can look at that in all sorts of ways degenerate sexual practices obesity um, lowering intelligence just general stupidity etc is this not a creation of universal monogamy i actually do know where it started or at least i think i do i think it was right so richard here is arguing that degeneracy is the result of monogamy right richard's not a big fan of nationalism which which endows every individual with dignity, not a big fan of monogamy either. On that island. It's called Plague the Peoples. So, but it started with- Well, okay, let me just push, okay. There was a, the, the Black Plague as a selection event is kind of fascinating. I, I have a book that I haven't read. It's called Plague the Peoples. Ah, what's his name who wrote this? It's a classic history, but I, I want to look at it. But um, the Black Plague was absolutely a selection event. And if you were wealthier and more intelligent, you survived. Um, but that was not an aberration from the general trajectory of things, which was that the... Yeah, I agree with John Smith in the chat. No, no monogamy, no civilization, right? You have to incentivize men to work hard and nothing incentivizes that, like looking after, looking after a wife and kids. Rich, if we just want to, I mean, I, again, I don't think that fully describes them because we have an idea of a rich person now, which is very different than a rich person back then. But the rich were absolutely outbreeding the poor. And they were replacing them. So there was a process of downward mobility where the fifth son of a rich person would become like a yeoman farmer or a shopkeeper. He would go down in station and replace the people who were never born. And this is, so there, this is that downward mobility where people of higher- I can jump in, Richard. It's, it's a, you were replacing not only those who weren't born, but those who had died in infancy. Because of course, right. that was where the, the infant mortality kicked in with 50% infant mortality, as you know, as Ed Dutton writes about. I mean, it was quite common in those days for poor, and therefore generally less intelligent families to have five children who all died in infancy. And so, yes, right. the, children of the, the children of the upper class was replaced on each generation. If I go on, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I, I mean, I'm sorry that, that that was good. I mean, from our perspective, I mean- that was more intelligent people moving down in station, but ultimately making the whole population better. And I've, I've often said this, I think that the prima nocta myth, which was a myth, there was no, I don't think it's ever been proven there's ever a situation where the Lord of the got the first, first night. night with any peasant wife who he, uh, who's on his land. I think that was used as a like plot device in Braveheart, wasn't it? Um, but in his plot device in the marriage of Figaro and all sorts of other things. Um, I don't think that ever happened, but I, I think it became a myth because they, they kind of sensed that that's what was happening. That the noble the nobles were literally having sex with peasant women and peasant men were getting cucked and also um, they were just outbreeding the peasants. It was almost as if they had first night privileges, but that's can't be proven. It's just kind of my literary reading of it. But that was a good thing. And this universal middle class society that was created in America has some real problems to it. And like you, I mean, as Ed puts forth in this forthcoming book on eugenics, like we're we are almost breeding for heart disease at this point in time you know like we are breeding for heart disease okay heart disease and cancer are what inevitably happen when you reduce the things that used to kill people very early right when you stop infectious diseases that used to kill people young then people inevitably die 
of diseases that take a long time to develop, meaning cancer and heart disease. So the rise in cancer and heart disease over the past century is in large part due to people are living longer. They're not dying of infectious disease like they used to. And yeah, middle-class morality has its problems. I don't know of a better morality. I, I don't know of a better way to build a society. Our, we are promoting dishealth. It is terrible. And, you know, where is that coming from outside of, I mean, it's coming from, you know, the, the kind of almost like reverse bell curve of the poor having a lot of kids, the middle class or not, the upper class are having kids, but they're much smaller in number. But, but also just like universal monogamy. This notion that like... Yeah, Richard really does not like monogamy. He does not like democracy. He doesn't like free speech. He doesn't like nationalism. And to me, those are all really good things. Everyone deserves a woman. Everyone deserves two kids and a car. And Yeah, he's making fun of the notion of one man, one woman, making a lifetime commitment to each other and sticking by it. House and whatever that is not going to have as good upward mobility is going to have much more, much poorer outcomes for the whole society as downward mobility. Do we even have a noble class anymore? Because I feel we like have a billionaire class. <laughs> yeah. So what do our women have as for an example of like real men in this country? Like what do they even, I feel like the women are kind of screwed because what do they have as an example of a class of men to look up to? I don't think, I don't think they have it. No. I mean, there still are some people, I mean, like out here in Montana, you still find like the dudes, you know, like the guy, he works construction, he has kids, he's the baseball coach, you know, the kind of dude, cool guy. Right, but I mean, upper class, the upper class dudes. Yeah, we Where don't have they? those. They're gone. No, we have nerds who work at Amazon or something. And the elite class is just like, you know, totally off the wall and, you know, somewhat irredeemable. Well, it's sort of like a, why would the elites be in a conspiracy? to rule the world when it could just be explained that the elites themselves are just weak people ruling over masses of weak people. Yeah. And they need to be like shamed publicly for being losers. Yeah. They're not very impressive. Like what Alex Jones says about Bill Gates makes him a badass. What he says about George Soros sounds pretty freaking awesome, except it's not oh, yeah. true. Like these are nerds. Yeah, Bill Gates is launching a eugenics program in Africa. It's like, okay. I wish. <laughs> Don't think he's actually doing that. Uh, and we do have, I mean, not to say that, I mean, we have like a white, I mean, I mentioned the dudes before, but then we also have like the, the admirable males who, you know, work in a, some kind of professional capacity and have two to three children and have a suburban house and whatever. Like we do have those people and they are admirable to some extent. They're probably voting Republican less now than they were. They probably voted 90% Republican 30 years ago and are voting 60% Republican now or whatever. But I mean, we do have some degree of, you know, admirable types. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the elites, I mean, I don't know. They're, you can find the occasional people. I mean, they, they do have some serious people. Like, I don't, for instance, I, I hate this notion of, like, you know, this is like a, an alt-light meme that, like, we're pursuing foreign policy based on social media or something. Like, all of these crazy people get excited about Ukraine, and that's why they're giving them a billion dollars. Like, that is totally preposterous. There actually are serious and even ruthless people who have foreign policy objectives that they will. Yeah, I, I think Rich is absolutely right here. It is a serious and a ruthless approach to the Ukraine conflict that the United States is engaged in. Now, I think it's a needlessly dangerous approach to essentially we're engaged in a proxy war with Russia over Ukraine that could go nuclear at any time. 
that could involve the United States more directly at any time. I think that's a bad idea, but it is being waged from a particularly ruthless and hard-headed perspective. I think it's wrong. I think it's ill-advised. I think the potential of it becoming catastrophic is way too high for my comfort level, but I, I don't think it comes from a place of just sheer stupidity or naivete. Well, here's you, and that, that will include killing millions. Right. We're engaged in a conflict where we're willing to have millions of people die. So we're en engaged in a very ruthless, hard-headed strategy in Ukraine. I, I think you should always soft-pedal moral denunciations of people. Hmm. But beyond that, whenever people are just like fanatically denouncing people, it's, it's almost like they want to save themselves. Or there, there's some other weird motivation going on. So, and you feel like Jesse Lee Peterson is kind of applied. I'm to saying that. that that could be the case. So there's a new documentary coming out that uh, Jesse Lee Peterson is gay. Uh, I don't buy it. No, hang no, on. Look at Fuentes. Look at Fuentes. Catboy. Yeah, Catboy, tranny porn. He's always talking about the 1950s and Catholicism. Oh, look at Alex Fuentes Jones. Got, yo, yeah. I, I was going to mention Alex Jones's uh, trans porn. I wasn't aware Nick got busted with the same stuff. The exact same situation. It was like on a. Um, <laughs> it was on a window on his phone. Yeah. Like who's that? Uh, who's that conservative Christian studio. pastor who was outed as a cop? <laughs> oh, Jerry Falwell Jr. And he That's again, like I don't even know. Like it was just weird because he was outed as a full-on cuck. Like he would, they hired a pool boy and he would like sit in the corner while the pool boy railed his wife or whatever. Like it was like to it wasn't even that like he was like just screwing chicks left and right or had a three-way with his wife or whatever. It was like he was fully cucked. Like he was he was into the cuck thing. Don't forget a Madison Cawthorn. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I mean, if, uh, wasn't there like a the lot of smoke? humiliating one I've heard. Yeah, wasn't there a lot of smoke with the Madison Cawthorn thing? Like, I get the whole, like, bro first off, the one where he was in lingerie on a cruise, I thought that was entirely defensible because he was just playing some, like, he was surrounded by girls and they, they were like, oh, put this on. This, you know, I, that one was totally, you could defend that. Be like, ah, we were being silly, these jacks, whatever. But the, like, grabbing your cousin's groin or something, that was a bit much. You know, if only, I don't know. If only if only there was someone on this call who uh, worked with Jesse Lee Peterson for a couple of years and knows. Oh, him you did. Okay, sorry. You're just setting this up. So tell us. Is he, did you fuck him? What? Is he gay? No, it, is it's it? no, it is not true. It is not true at all. There's not even an iota of truth to it. It's oh, these, okay. these guys that two of these guys are just really goofy guys that you if you met them you would instantly be like oh yeah you would not they're very eccentric kind of very uh, quirky uh, older characters and you just would never you, you would not take them seriously and. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure there was some argue, there was some obviously some bitter disagreement and you know he could be a dick absolutely sometimes but he's not gay. Uh, okay. I, I never even saw you know and they're also saying that James Hake the guy you did interview an interview oh, with, yeah. also, he was gay he's gay and they caught him, them in bed together. I mean I lived with them for the first three weeks when I moved to L.A. I lived in their house. This is this is all just there's no basis it's just all groundless. Oh okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Fair enough. But it's pretty shy. I, didn't, I really the can't blacks are kind of into sex on the down low. I would stop offer this out there. Well, 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 the blacks are into sex on the down low. Some blacks are, some whites are, some Jews are, some Asians are. Not necessarily. Hey, he struck me. I don't have a great <laughs> gaydar, and I'm not gay. But he struck me as yeah. extremely heterosexual. Like, I, if someone told me that he was gay, I'd be like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" But who am right. I really to say these things? But um, the blacks, eh, they kind of get into the down low stuff. Yeah, but I just... Like I the Eddie Murphy type thing? Well, maybe more, more masculine cultures, when, when they go that way, they may have incentives to keep it on the down low. Uh, but is, is it really 
that much higher in black culture? I don't believe so compared to other cultures. Yeah, I'm not making accusations. I, I will not say any of this publicly. I like, I think Jesse Lee Peterson is a kind of hilarious, you know, personality. Um, I don't have anything against him, but just say. Yeah, but I've just, I can tell you in working with him for two and a half years and knowing him personally, I never saw a shred of sign of anything suspicious. And, you know, and I, I made the point, which <laughs> kind of sounds conceited, but these guys that are on the video, they're in, they're like in their 50s and 60s, not good looking guys, not, not, let's just say they're not Mitt Romney's. And I was like, okay, I've, I've been at Jesse's house like uh, late at night because like interviews that I booked for him and I was helping him set up and it was just me and him around. Don't, and you don't, I was like, you think maybe I'm a little better looking than these guys? And don't you think he might have tried, I don't know, maybe tested the waters or thrown out there something? <laughs> right. I think you were offended, but. Exactly. <laughs> and especially when I first moved, when I first moved out there, I was an unpaid intern, and I was like really, really eager to like get hired as a permanent employee. Like that's like the textbook person that gets taken advantage of. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. Gays actually hit on straight people because I feel like they just try to sniff out who else is gay. But I don't think I've ever been hit on by gays. So maybe like once or twice. But do they try to just like? I feel like they have an instinct for telling who is like that, and then they. Yeah, gays have like, what gays are. I mean, they. And and also, it's kind of like, the, you know. It's like you want to go hunting where the ducks are. Like, do you want to attempt to seduce a heterosexual with like a one percent chance of succeeding, or do you want to go meet a fellow gay with a ninety nine percent chance of succeeding? Like, you're mm, yeah. maybe that's you're why they're like, like, never going to do it. Maybe they're like their main antagonism towards you is because you're not gay enough to groom for them. Like, you're, you're straight, so they can't groom you, and that pisses them off. Well, I think there was so actually they call a lot you gay because they're just projecting, right? I think it's there like, was a lot to that actually with certain personalities. I think certainly with Greg Johnson, which has been a, this long-term one-sided grudge. Like they liked you, um, but they wanted to dominate you, but then they can't. Uh, you're not the gay. amount of like perversity in the alt light also like. So the idea that the feud between Richard Spencer and Greg Johnson is just one-sided, just all coming from Greg's side, is absurd. I remember Richard DM. I asked Richard for comment on an interview I did with Greg Johnson and. Richard just like went off on, on Greg, just wanted him completely, you know, blackboard, removed from the movement. Can't be underestimated. Like it's almost total in the sense that in, in just homosexuals and various types like that. It's Ali Alexander. Very, yeah, exactly. Ali Alexander, that other Lucian Wintrich. Um, Mike Cernovich. Mike Cernovich did it. Mike he did Cernovich. it with the tranny. Yeah. It is, it is extreme. <laughs> Richard, and by the way, your word for it. I, I have nothing against him, and so you know, I'm just saying it's not entirely implausible. And I also like, but again, I have no evidence that we only have their word, and that their word might not be worth very much. <laughs> but someone else, yeah. Um, it <laughs> this is Richard on his Greg Johnson. I mean, it, it goes back a very long ways. Um, it was. Uh, I, I don't know exactly when it started because. He was initially extremely friendly, like when I was at Talkies Magazine, because Greg, like many other gays, he, he really succeeds at like caddy networking and things like that. And so there was that. I remember him when Radix was around. One, one thing I have noticed about him is he, he'll often just like do his own version of what I would do. So I asked Andrew Joyce once why this feud between Richard Spencer and Greg Johnson, he, and he said it just boils down to ego. So, I mean, I started alternativeright.com many years ago, and, like, he jumps out with countercurrents, and I don't know, it's just kind of weird, but that's not, I guess that's not that revealing or unusual, but um, I remember him going in the comments section and really, like, getting into all these, like, catty disputes in the comments section of Radix, and then in 2014, when I was hosting the Budapest conference, and he, he was engaging in 
some really bad behavior. Um, just like spreading rumors, denouncing. Uh, bad behavior, meaning criticizing Richard Spencer. Denouncing me while I was like literally in jail. And um... so you should have a get out of jail free card to criticism when you're in jail. Doing just all of this shit, getting, talking to John Morgan, who was this guy um, who was, he's a real beta type. Or no, I shouldn't even say beta. Betas are admirable. He's a pushover. Um, and yeah, you, uh, you did an interview with him on like Avalo way back in the day, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Learning information and spreading information online. He is always like, whenever there's been some, I, this is, I, I think during the alt-right days or when it really came to the fore. So there was this time when he was demanding that everyone denounce Roosh. And it was because Roosh had like said some nice things about me or something. And it would be like, you have to denounce Roosh. You have to, I never denounce Roosh. Roosh is different now. I would denounce Roosh any day. He's like a trad cat or whatever. But um, at that point he was just, it was part of the big 10 all right and stuff like that. I was just not into denouncing people. And then that transformed into, you need to denounce Milo. And he uh, did this thing where Milo did, a, did a, an event on, a, on his college tour saying like, um, this is how you destroy the alt-right. And his version of how to destroy the alt-right is you basically give them everything they want. So you end affirmative action, build the wall, stop immigration, blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was a kind of ironic way of saying how you destroy the alt-right. And, but they were all on this bench of like, you must denounce Milo, you must attack Milo. And um, Greg went on Fash the Nation and he was like, well, we're just all waiting for Richard to denounce Milo. Like we're waiting on him because apparently according to the New York Times, he's our leader. So we're just all hoping and like all this just really like disingenuous type rhetoric. And I never did denounce Milo. I denounced Milo. I don't think anyone looking in from the outside without caring one way or another about Richard Spencer or Greg Johnson would see this feud as being entirely driven by one person or just, oh, one person's ridiculous, the other person's a true leader. All right, there's a great thread here on Twitter by Rob Henderson noting that for culture and for cultural memory, elites matter more than majorities. So the folks who showed up for the Summer of Love 1967 in San Francisco were not a representative sample of 60s youth, right? Most young people in the 1960s did not practice free love. They did not take drugs. They did not protest the war in Vietnam. So in a poll taken in 1967, when people asked whether couples should wait to have sex until they were married, 63% of those in their 20s said, yes, they should wait, right? That was the same as the general population. 1969, when people aged 21 to 29 were asked whether they'd ever used marijuana, 88% no, said no. Same group asked whether the United States should withdraw immediately from Vietnam, three quarters said no, same as the general population. So most young people in the 1960s were not notably liberal. When people who attended college from 1966 to 68 were asked which candidate they preferred in the 1968 presidential election, 53% said Richard Nixon or George Wallace. And in Chuck Klosterman's new book on the 1990s, he notes that Garth Brooks was by far the best-selling artist of the 1990s, but today more people remember Kurt Cobain because the elites were much more interested in Kurt Cobain than Garth Brooks. So Shania Twain sold 14 times more albums than Courtney Love. But who do we remember as being more iconic of that era today? Then Madman is another example of this phenomenon. It aired during the same time period and on the same network as The Walking Dead. And The Walking Dead drew 10 times the audience of Mad Men. But Mad Men will be remembered long after The Walking Dead. So Mad Men received minimal reviews, but it had a cult audience of about a million viewers. 
but many had incomes more than a hundred thousand. So yeah, it's it's a few elites who dominate culture and cultural memory. Milo after the scandal came out where Milo was in support of pedophilia of some kind, and I was just like, all right, fuck this guy. I don't even want to talk about him. But it was this weird thing of like he he wants to set up. He'll he'll take the opposite position and kind of like set up some dispute where there need not be one. And then immediately after everyone had moved on from Milo, um, Greg started supporting Milo. <laughs> so in the alt-right days where Milo was like on our side in 2016, he was anti-Milo. And then once Milo is like plausibly accused of celebrating pedophilia, he starts defending Milo. It's just this weird thing. And um, anytime there's been any scandal or I have genuinely made a mistake or you know said something I haven't or whatever, he will go out to start like email blasting everyone, shit talking me to no end. And I'll get these emails because I do have some friends out there. So I'll, I'll see these emails and I'm like, holy shit. Um, he is just a unbelievable nasty person. I, I just, I, I don't know what to say. I just don't associate with him. I don't respond. I don't do anything. And it has lessened. He attacks me less, but it's just, it's just endless inner bickering. And I, I think for someone like Greg, I, I think his desire is to be a kind of like guru of white nationalism. And if there's anyone who is threatening towards that, he will attack viciously. But I do find him just entirely disingenuous. I well, Richard Spencer keeps saying he's not associated with white nationalism anymore, so it would make sense that Greg Johnson would be less interested in denouncing him as Richard has ostensibly and publicly left that game. I don't find him that great in terms of what he says. Like, I, I think a lot of this stuff is kind of stock and then like book reports on Evola or whatever. And I don't know. I, I really find him unbelievably nasty. But I have taken to the like my, I, I will not respond to anything. I don't know the last time I responded to any of his provocation. I just simply won't. So, um, but he's pretty meaningless, I have to say. I mean, I don't, I never hear anyone talking about Greg Johnson outside of gossip. Hmm. So, um, go ahead. So speaking of uh, pundits and uh, people, so of all like the classic 1.0 leaders like Pierce, Duke, uh, Richard Butler, Ben Klassen, Metzger, do you have any that you admire most of all? I know you said you admired Pierce in the past. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I think Pierce was the one who's a real intellectual. Like, I mean, all of his nonsense, like the Turner Diaries and other things aside, I mean, he actually... Yeah, aside from inspiring mass murder, William Pierce is the one that Richard admires. He could develop ideas, and it was kind of fascinating. Um, so, I mean, I would say that Pierce is someone who I, w I would talk about seriously. I mean, Duke is an extremely talented politician, and... He's actually immensely talented. I don't know if white nationalists are white nationalists who want to bash Duke do not know the level of talent they have on his hands on their hands. I mean, he is a politician who is much more skilled than most working today. But I also say that as a bit of a backhanded insult because he is a politician. He's not an intellectual. So he speaks in platitudes. But I don't. David Duke. Yes, I've heard him say some pretty intellectual, unique talking points. Okay, but, but I get my impression. I don't dislike him. He's kind of annoying on some level, but, you know, I don't, he went further than... Why is he annoying? Because he takes attention that should be more properly devoted to Richard Spencer. He takes up public space and air that should be devoted to Richard Spencer. He gets donations that should more properly be directed towards Richard Spencer. And I don't think Richard Spencer would disagree with me here. Any of these people could even dream of going. And he almost became governor of Louisiana. What exactly specifically was his, uh, his talents as a politician that were so great? Um, he's good looking. He is charismatic. 
in the sense that he's probably a sociopath, to be honest. Um, he uh, can just speak. He can give a set. I mean, if you give him five minutes to prepare, he could just go talk for 30 minutes on the white race and the Jews, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I mean, he is very good. But I, I think there are kind of limits to that. But like all of the people in the movement who are like, oh, we hate Duke or whatever. I'm like, what do you guys want? Like, you want a politician. Like, he's the best you could ever possibly hope for. He's the only one who ran for a race, right? One of the only few who ran. And won. I know uh, Metzger got a uh, the Democratic nomination in California in the 1980s uh, for a seat in the, there in one of the representative districts, and he actually got crushed in the the actual election. And uh, he attacked conservatives before it was cool, and he he hated Reagan like there was no tomorrow. And he oh, really? he was not a fan of Duke, but um to uh you know he was the first real WN to go out against conservatives majorly. He bashed them more than the liberals, and he did that till the day he died in uh, 2020. Interesting. I didn't know he died in 2020. Did he die of coronavirus? I do not believe so. Um, if he had, I, that would have been a bigger news item. And I don't think he was into, de- I don't recall him ever denying uh, COVID either or right. other that nonsense. Okay, so I've been reading a terrific book on Jacob Taubes, Professor of Apocalypse, The Many Lives of Jacob Taubes by Jerry Z. Mueller. So he talks about uh, Jacob grew up in Switzerland after World War II. He moved to the United States, and he joined the faculty of the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is the seminary for the conservative movement in Judaism. So JTS at that time was headed by Louis Finkelstein. So Finkelstein was trying to convince both Jews and Christians of the ongoing relevance of Judaism and its consonance with American liberal democracy. So he turned Jewish survival into an American good. He believed that American Jews would only return to greater Jewish identification and observance once Judaism had attained legitimacy in the wider culture. So he founded an Institute for Religious Studies. And it was in these precincts that the whole notion of the Jewish Christian tradition was birthed, together with the idea that American democracy sprang from Judeo-Christian values. That was Louis Finkelstein who came up with that. So Jacob Taubes was a frequent guest for Sabbath meals at the Louis Finkelstein home. He befriended Finkelstein's children, especially his youngest daughter, Amuna, who was 17 years of age when Jacob first arrived in their home. She was erudite and bright. He was erudite and bright. He made a striking impression on the Finkelstein family, not least on Amuna, who found him fascinating. So he began dating her. And so it was customary at the more traditional yeshivas for the favored pupil to marry the daughter of the Rosh Yeshiva. So Jacob may have had this model in mind, but no romance developed. Jacob seemed to have acted in a way the Finkelstein family regarded as taking liberties with the young girl, which put an end to any further courting and cast a pall over Jacob's relationship with Amuna's father, Louis Finkelstein. Okay. Um, I know him less. I, I remember many years ago where, like, almost 15 or 20 years ago, I, w- I listened to Pierce's broadcast. Um, and I was impressed by that. I mean, he's, he is an interesting, intellectual, like, analytic person. I had no idea you were such a David Duke respecter, Richard. I would, uh, you guys have never done anything together, though, have you? Um, occasionally. I mean, I think I, I was on, during 2016, I was like on his radio show or some point or something like that. I've spoken with him on the phone many times. Um, I would love you know. to see you guys do a stream. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a David Duke respecter. I, in the sense that I think you should give people their due. Like I, I don't, I've got certain problems with him and I do disagree with it, with him. And I think he has some bad tendencies, but 
Yeah, Richard is not one, generally speaking, to give a lot of do to competing thinkers, but on occasion he does. So he respects uh, David Duke's uh, political acumen. So Jacob Taubes was a Jewish scholar who was fascinated by Carl Schmitt and the author of this new book on Jacob Taubes, The Many Lives of Jacob Taubes, is this guy here, Jerry Z. Mueller, who gave a talk on the relationship between Taubes and Schmidt. Yes, who uh, cement Taubes' reputation as a bad boy. And last but not least was Jacob's conviction that Schmidt was among the greatest thinkers of the age, in whose company Taubes was eager to find himself. Yes, so that was key to Taubes' fascination with Carl Schmidt. Here we go to Carl Schmidt as about the greatest uh, German thinker of, of the age and Talbus thought that uh, it, would, it would improve his own standing if he could associate himself with Carl Schmidt. So Jacob Taubes only published one book in his lifetime, his PhD thesis, and he instead spent his time in open-ended speculation to interest himself in everything but the scholarly subject at hand, and the lack of scholarly productivity that flowed from this tendency would remain the bane of his life. But he had a tremendous gift for conversation and before there was the internet, people could talk to Jacob Taubes to get up to date on intellectual trends. So Taubes had a tremendous ability at connecting with people, talking with people, and noticing intellectual trends uh, way ahead of other people. So before there was Google, there was Jacob Taubes. So one of the... Uh, one of the, the couples who attended a seminar that Jacob Taubes gave on Moses Maimonides was the couple Irving Crystal and Gertrude Himmelfarb. And Taubes said that Gertrude Himmelfarb was by far the more intelligent of the two. No, I'm getting confused here. Um, but Irving Crystal's wife was the more in intelligent. So anyway, G is Gertrude Himmelfarb, was that Crystal's wife? Anyway, Gertrude Himmelfarb wrote an essay in 1950, The Prophets of the New Conservatism. And she made a great point that uh, really came from Edmund Burke. The conservative suspects that the truth, which gives life and dignity and power to an aristocracy or an elite, might bring a catastrophe if allowed to permeate the lower layers of society. So if atheism is true, right, that may give dignity and power to an aristocracy or an elite, but would bring catastrophe if this way of thinking was able to permeate the lower levels of society. So let me touch upon each of these sources of Taubes's uh, attraction to Schmidt. First, the mystery of intellectuals and national socialism. Yes, Gertrude Himmelfarb was Irving Kristol's wife and the more intelligent of the two. From the time he first encountered Schmidt's work as a student in Zurich, Taubes thought of Schmidt as a great mind. And it was also clear to him, at least after his initial seminar that was described yesterday, where he presented the ideas in Politische Theologie, it became clear to him very soon that Schmidt was an open and important supporter of the National Socialist regime. Okay, so Jacob Taubes, a uh, fascinating character. He exhibited a lot of extreme behavior, which seemed to be on the border between the neurotic and the psychotic. Right, behavior that is in keeping with many of the characteristic features of manic depressive illness in its milder, milder hypomania form. So Jacob seemed to have no sense of boundaries, propriety, or private property. So one of the first things happened to me when I entered weekly psychotherapy 
1998 is my therapist gave me a handout on boundaries. And I didn't manage to internalize it probably for another 15 years. So when Jacob's clothes got dirty, he would throw them in his closet. The smell would permeate the room. Eventually, the maid would refuse to enter because of the stench. So I've noticed women are much more sensitive to stenches and smells and untidiness. They, they react much more viscerally. Uh, Jacob, this is while he's living at the Jewish Theological Seminary, would boast about his sexual escapades, which he would describe in graphic terms that shocked the rabbinical students. And he combined this violation of sexual norms with elements of ongoing religious piety. But he wouldn't just settle for any ordinary level of piety. It, it usually had to be like extreme piety, right? He, he couldn't just be, be a normal bloke. So he explained he would not sleep with a woman unless she obeyed the laws of ritual purity, unless she had bathed in, in the mikvah. And he made one woman go and immerse herself in the Hudson River before having sex with him. So Jacob conveyed the impression he thought himself so smart he could get away with anything. So that has characterized much of my life, and I think it's characterized much of Richard Spencer's life. So there was a memoir by Richard L. Rubenstein. So he came, Richard Rubenstein came from a background of minimal Jewish knowledge. Then he studied at the Reform Hebrew Union College, became attracted to more traditional forms of Judaism, left to pursue a rabbinical degree from JTS. And then at the same time, he began studying in an Orthodox yeshiva. So Richard Rubenstein has this great description of Talbus. There's something indefinably disturbing, one might almost say demonic, about Talbus, and I think this would also apply to Richard Spencer. His movements were quick and energetic. He did not seem very robust. His coloring suggested that his natural habitat was the sidewalk cafe. So Talbus had a great fear of the, the great outdoors. Right? His natural habitat was the cafe, the dingy hotel, the library. He was a stranger to the world of nature. So I remember I went several times to a long weekend Jewish convention at, at the Hilton in Orange County. And uh, most of us didn't leave the hotel for the four days of this Jewish convention. We were just going to Torah classes all day or night. So Talbus was fascinating to a certain class of overly cultivated women who were perhaps more interested in exploring the hidden, the unusual, and the mysterious than in openly celebrating the uncomplicated joys of physical love. When we first met, some of the seminary students called him the crown prince because he was courting Amuna Finkelstein, the chancellor's daughter. He always wore the longest and the most ostentatious prayer shawl when he came, as he did frequently to religious services. In spite of his display of piety, he talked a great deal about blasphemy, the holiness of sin, and mystical antinomianism. So antinomian means anti-law. At one of our earliest meetings, he made the accurate prediction that I would soon find more meaning in the pagan gods of Canaan, Canaan than in the Lord of Israel. His theological strategy was to demonstrate the impossibility of all commitments devoid of religious faith. So he sought to generate faith out of horror of the secular alternatives. He was perhaps more skillful than any secular humanist I've ever met in arguing for the very world without God he called upon me to reject. So Richard Rubenstein says, I became fascinated with the more prominent forms of mystical antinomianism that had surfaced in Jewish history. So Judaism is a legal tradition, but there have been these anti-law movements. So I saw Paul of Tarsus' proclamation that Christ is the end of the law as the classical expression of mystical Jewish antinomianism. 
So between Talmudic discussions of an ox which gored a cow, so Judaism in general or the Talmud in particular tends to be primarily preoccupied with things that happen in daily life as opposed to uh, theories of dogmatic theology, systematic theology. So between these Talmudic discussions, I wanted to talk about Paul's antinomianism. So on the surface, Paul's proclamation of the end of the law, meaning the end of the Torah, was an expression of the spiritual wasteland we had rejected. But at another level, we were both fascinated with Paul, who became Christendom's greatest and most perennially influential theologian. We were also intrigued by Shabtai Zvi, who was a 17th century Jew who proclaimed himself the Messiah. And one point up to about a third of the Jewish world believed that Shabtai Zvi was the Messiah, but he ended up uh, converting to Islam. So could I have been a crypto-Sabbatean? I hovered between love of God and dreams of sinful liberty. And Jacob Taub's personality heightened these tendencies. My, my wife Ellen and I were simultaneously attracted and repulsed by him. So one day, his wife Ellen was preparing for a Bible lesson in an empty room in the cemetery dormitory. I entered the room while she was engrossed in Bible study. She did not notice me. I came up behind her, put my right hand on her breast, and fondled it. She relaxed and became limped. We continued for a few minutes until I broke the erotic atmosphere by speaking. My God, she said, I thought you were Jacob Taubes. I felt hypnotized and couldn't resist. <laughs> so his wife thought that it was Jacob Taubes who was fondling her breast. She felt hypnotized and couldn't resist. That Taubes had a seductive, disturbing effect on both of us. So Rubenstein only had limited time with Taubes. So Taubes said you can improve your knowledge of Talmud by studying at the ultra-Orthodox Yeshiva Masifta High in Berlin. And so Richard Rubenstein felt distressed. He had this internal pull towards antinomianism, and he reacted by becoming increasingly attracted to the more traditional forms of Orthodox Judaism. So after being admitted to the rabbinical school at the moderate Jewish Theological Seminary, he considered the possibility of transferring to this super-Orthodox yeshiva, despite the costs of time and emotion required to become an Orthodox rabbi. Now his friends at JTS tried to dissuade him, all of them except Jacob Taubus. So Taubus was the only one who encouraged me to leave JTS. He warned me that were I to remain at JTS, I would be worse than the most contemptible bourgeois because I understood what was spiritually at stake in choosing the compromises of conservative Judaism. So reform and conservative Judaism are both compromises with the tradition, and it's hard to get passionate and excited and devoted to a compromise. So mainstream religion, by and large, is a compromise with the tradition. And so it's a lot harder to become passionate and devoted to mainstream religion as opposed to traditional forms of religion. So it says Talbus was manic in his enthusiasm. He rolled his eyes and gesticulated energetically as he said, isn't it wonderful he's going to leave this terrible place and go to high in Berlin? Think of the drama. A man with Rubenstein's background leaving all this corruption and compromise to go to the Masifta. Whose drama? Yours or his? You goad him into leaving while you stay. He's got a pregnant wife. He's made enough changes. Do you want to wreck him? So... Richard Rubenstein says, I began to see Jacob Taubus as a peculiar kind of Mephistopheles. He was seducing me with the promise of an impossible ideological purity, made all the more questionable by his own refusal to take the same path. When Taubus saw the drama was not going to take place, 
he called toward me immediately and became extremely contemptuous. So this is Talbus in the role of the tempter, always looking at new possibilities beyond the horizons of a settled life. So Talbus was fascinated by the apocalypse, because at least the apocalypse won't be boring. So whenever Rubenstein would run into Talbus in the future, whenever they met, Talbus would reinforce my negative feelings about myself for having become a conservative rabbi and having contaminated myself by daily association with ordinary middle-class Jews. But Talbus was right about Rubenstein's ultimate inclinations. Rubenstein said the experience of the Holocaust negated any traditional conception of God, and Rubenstein embraced an atheistic form of Judaism and wrote a work of theological reflection called Brother Paul about Paul of Tarsus. So all these different Jews at JTS came to see Jacob Talbus as a brilliant, perverted, demonic manipulator. Right? Talbus had an animal-like instinct for human weakness and how to exploit it. So just as an animal knows the softest spot of its prey in which to sink his teeth, Talbus could quickly discern an individual's vulnerability and use it to his own purpose. These qualities correspond to some of the classic characteristics of manic depression in its milder phase, an enhanced liveliness and interpersonal charm, the ability to find vulnerable spots in others, make use of them, and an unusual perceptiveness at both the subconscious and the unconscious level. So this is written by this man, Jerry Talbus wanted Mueller. to understand how intellectuals of the stature of Schmidt or Heidegger could have arrived at that position. It was a subject that Talbus discussed often in Jerusalem with Martin Buber in New York with uh, George Schwab in the late 1950s when Schwab was meeting with Schmidt and writing a book about him. I should note that, the, that, that this is a question, the question of great intellectuals and national socialism, which I think should actually interest any morally sensitive intellectual. Um, it's one that interested me enough to write a, uh, my first book about it called The Other God That Failed, which is about Hans Fryer. And when I was finishing that book, I came across a curious little volume, Ad Karl Schmidt, uh, that was published by Merve Verlag. At the time, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. But now, three decades later, and after a lot of research, I think I understand it a lot better. So Jacob Taubus was in part responsible for the revival of Carl Schmidt's reputation in the 1980s and 1990s, and there's been an absolute explosion in Schmidt scholarship since then. What are the theological distinctiveness of, the, of conservative Judaism? Does it contain a rejection of the documentary hypothesis? No, virtually all conservative rabbis accept the documentary hypothesis which says that the Pentateuch, the Torah, is not a unitary work that uh, arrived on the scene 3,200 years ago. The documentary hypothesis, which is pretty much the conclusion of all non-traditional, non-orthodox scholars, is that the Pentateuch is a post-Mosaic composite work uh, of different authors that was edited together and only reached final form about uh, 2,500 years ago. So there's not a lot of difference between conservative and reform Judaism. They're both liberal forms of Judaism that represent a considerable uh, compromise with the tradition. So uh, Jacob Taub's his, his first love was a woman who was four years older than his mother. He had this passionate affair with her. And he wrote to her, my most beloved, a great orgy has overtaken us. Love can bear all and forgives all. I sin only against myself. Matters proceed according to the dictum of my dear friend Paul. That which I will, I do not. That which I would not do, I do. So the Apostle Paul's declaration eased Jacob Talbot's sense of being unable to resist temptation, especially erotic temptation. 
So he eventually married a Susan Feldman and she became Susan Talbus. She wrote a novel about their relationship. And then about a week after it was published, she committed suicide. So she had, uh, she, she gave birth to two children. Talbus was not so much interested in regular sex. He was interested in tr transgressive sex, and he was particularly interested in taking innocent women and subjecting them to the most humiliating and degrading sex possible. So one of Talbus's girlfriends walked in on him in bed with his wife and Susan Sontag. I'll play a little bit more here from uh, Jerry Mueller. It's important to keep in mind that Talbus knew that anti-Semitism was an important element of Schmidt's thought. For Talbus, that made it all the more important to try to understand Schmidt. He didn't play down Schmidt's anti-Semitism, not when he wrote to Schmidt, or when he wrote about Schmidt, or when he met with Schmidt in the late 1970s. In fact, Talbus's explication of Paul's letter to the Romans, which he discussed with Schmidt, was intended to show Schmidt that Paul didn't think of Jews as the enemy of Christians, as if Schmidt's support of the Third Reich was based on a huge theological misunderstanding. Another character. So after World War II, Karl Schmidt was regarded as intellectually beyond the pale, because he was one of the most prominent German intellectuals to publicly support the Nazi regime. But he still retained some influence. So after the founding of the Federal Republic of West Germany in 1949, Schmidt maintained his relationships with leading right-wing German intellectuals of his generation. And he built up a wide-ranging network of intellectual contacts among the younger generation, mainly on the intellectual right and extending well beyond the borders of Germany. So these younger men, there were no women, retracted Karl Schmidt by the scope of his erudition in history, philosophy, literature, and law, by his talent for suggestive conceptual formulations and by the frisson, the excitement of contact with an intellectual outlaw. So through participation in seminars with sympathetic colleagues and face-to-face -face meetings at his home in the village of Plettenberg, and through his wide-ranging correspondence, Karl Schmidt labored to rebuild his reputation and extend his influence despite his official disgrace. When Israel was developing a constitution, the Israeli Minister of Justice Right, the German-born and educated Pinkus Rosen put in an urgent request to the Hebrew University Library for Karl Schmidt's 1928 book, Constitutional Theory. So Karl Schmidt may have had some influence on the development of the Constitution of the Jewish State of Israel. So Taubus was very much a historicist, understanding that everything takes place within a certain historical context, and you can't understand people or events outside of their context. And so the whole origin of this modern historicist understanding of the Bible was Baruch Spinoza, who set out the canons for interpretation of biblical texts that remain the hallmark of modern biblical scholarship. So the first of these canons is the assumption that the Bible is to be treated like any other book, that it should be analyzed using the rules of evidence that we bring to any other work written long ago and far away. So rather than reading later concepts, doctrines, and concerns into the text, including our own, we must strive to understand the text on its own terms. So that means we need to master the original language to understand its grammar and to grasp its characteristic literary figures of speech. We need to compare the use of words within the text to determine their meaning. We ought to compare all the pronouncements on any given matter to see whether the text conveys a single understanding or conflicting views, 
attention must be paid to the speaker, to his audience, and to the occasion for his statements. We ought to look first at internal textual evidence and to any reliable external facts to see what we can determine about the authorship of the work in question. And to judge the truth of the events reported, we ought as much as possible to reconstruct the mindset of the author, his cultural assumptions, and even his personal psychological dispositions. And we should be able to reconstruct the history of the text itself to determine where and how it was edited and canonized and whether spurious insertions had been added later. So in her letters to her husband, Susan Taubus addressed Jacob as her priest, my holy animal, my most trusted one, with whom I, a whorish pagan woman, made my eternal covenant. As their relationship progressed, she came to address him as my scheming one and my demonic one. And together they composed a document outlining their plans to live a sacramental way of life. So they formed their own cult, which included rituals to be formed at night and before sex. To make the sexual act a religious act as well, they included lighting candles, the serpent's fire, ritual washing, particularly important due to Jacob's lack of concern with his hygiene, and symbols such as the serpent, which was meant to have a phallic resonance, and the octopus, which is a Gnostic symbol that adorned many of her letters to Jacob. So she went on to do a PhD in Gnosticism. So they try to inaugurate a cult with just the two of them and then start expanding it outward to a circle of initiates, including Susan Sontag. And so their relationship moved from the platonic to the cultic to the sexual and back. But the cult turned out to be a dead end and was soon abandoned. So Susan Taubus despised religion. She despised nationalism. And she regarded the whole notion of particularist faith as primitive and retrograde. So Jacob Taubus's identification with the past and future of the Jewish people and his worries about the Jewish state struck her as fundamentally irrelevant. So she thought retreating into the clan, retreating into national enthusiasm, preoccupation with national problems is an invasion. Because we're not only Jews and not only the victims, we're also the accomplices. So living in Israel, the Jewish state struck her as no more than tribalism, she thought Jacob's concern for Judaism and the fate of the Jews was belly button worship. So she would not allow the practicing of Jewish rituals in their home, and that their two children were not raised with any uh, Jewish practice and identity. She was particularly fearful of the consequence of combining religious and national identity. She says the ex existence of the Jewish state may improve the status of the Jews all over the world, but it makes me feel ill at ease. The state means the renunciation of the Jews' religious pretensions as a group. Zionism may succeed, but can the people worship any other god than the one that created them as a people? Can they do otherwise than to deify their success? They will be like all the other peoples, only more proud and more pretentious. So Jacob repeatedly tried to explain to Susan the, the meaning and the value of Jewish practices, but or the virtue of the practices was, in her view, just a glorification of the Jewish people and a condemnation of others. Now, Jacob told her as an outsider to Judaism, she misunderstood its laws as nothing more than arbitrary decrees. A court cannot be created by an act of will, he contended, religious practice makes sense within historical religion. Susan was only interested in a form of spirituality that was unlinked to history, unlinked to revelation, and unlinked to any particular historical group. 
So Jacob would argue the need for connection to a people and to its past. She would reject the claims of historical fidelity, which she thought destroyed the possibility of a new beginning. Faithfulness to the memory of the dead was no basis of identity. And so she insisted that Jacob leave Israel, and she did not want Judaism to play any role in their home. Characteristic that attracted Talmud to Schmidt was Schmidt's erudition, the range of his knowledge in intellectual history in fields well beyond the law. That was something that attracted many younger scholars to Schmidt in the decades after 1945, including many who in no way shared his politics, such as Ernst Wolfgang Buchenförde, the SPD-oriented uh, judge on the uh, Bundesverfassungsschutz, uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the Supreme Court, sorry. Um, that process has been well documented by scholars of Schmidt's life, such as Dirk von Lach and Reinhard Mehring. Thus, when he was in Jerusalem in 1949, Talbus had turned to Schmidt's Verfassungslehre for guidance on the concept of law. And then a few years later, when he was living in Boston and editing a volume uh, for Beacon Press on conservatism, he wrote to Schmidt again for advice on what to include. And later still, <coughs> in the late 1970s, when they were in direct contact, Talbus, <coughs> excuse me, Talbus asked Schmidt for scholarly sources on the subjects he was teaching, like Hobbes and Spinoza. Let's turn to the links between theology and politics. Talbus as you heard yesterday, first read Schmidt's Politische Theologie at the age of 19 in a seminar on religion and politics in the 19th century taught by a historian at the University of Zurich, Leonard von Muralt. In that book and elsewhere, Schmidt argued that liberalism had a benign, naive view of human nature, overestimating the extent to which government could function based on rules and procedures alone, and overestimating the degree to which politics was based on reasoned discussion. Life was too unruly for that, Schmidt thought. And liberalism, with its rationalist bias, that all problems could be solved by discussion, and its emphasis on adhering to proper procedures at all cost, was therefore intellectually inadequate and politically faulty. Okay, I think I will conclude with some words from Styx. I think this is the song, uh, AD 1958. And so, my friends, we'll say goodnight. The time has claimed his prize. But tonight can always last as long as we keep alive the memories of paradise. That's it. Bye-bye.